Good morning. I said in the first service, did you have like flashbacks of like Sister Act in here this morning? Just had that kind of feel. It was so good. Lola, thank you for singing for us this morning. Choir, thank you. It was just a good energy today. Great way to, um, to begin a sermon, I believe. So I said earlier at the first service as well, and I didn't mean to say it this way, but I said it's been an amazing weekend. My wife's been out of town, and I didn't mean it like that. I meant to just simply say my wife has been out of town, and... And, and so it's also been a great weekend. Um, Jenna took up my two younger children and my family, my grandparents who are in town from Minnesota to the beach, to my mother-in-law's beach house to spend uh, the weekend. I couldn't go because I had a wedding I needed to do. So I stayed back with my oldest son uh, in Eli and he was my, my wedding buddy all weekend. So he had a good time, but he was upset. He had to wear button-down shirts every day this weekend. So he went to the rehearsal with me, went to the wedding yesterday and we were setting up for the wedding. And in the wedding, we were doing uh, communion. So we had everything set up on this table and I was taking the bread out of the packaging to put it on the table. And he said, Dad, uh, do you think we should let Trey and Jenny know that it came from Food Lion? And I said, no, I think we'll just let it be uh, what it is for communion today. So, uh, but I, the thing I was most amazed by yesterday, going to this wedding up in Ridgeway, um, was just spending time with Mount Horb folks outside of Sunday morning and just the amazing people that come from this church. It's just such a blessing to be able to be one of the pastors here on staff. And so to even go to a wedding and spend time for the weekend with such great people and spending time yesterday with church folks that I love so much, it's been a really, really good time. I just want to say thank you to you as a church for the kind of people that you are. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it's an honor to be with you this morning as we open up the Bible together and we learn from God's Word. My prayer this morning is that it would transform us in some kind of way, that we would be new people when we leave here this morning. Um, if you're here in the room today, I want to welcome you to worship this morning. It's a blessing to be with you in person. If you're online this morning, thank you for tuning in as well. It's a blessing to be with you, even though I know right now you're probably at your kitchen table eating a tasty cinnamon roll and maybe drinking coffee. And I'm not. So whatever you're eating, share it in the chat. We would love to hear about it so we can be jealous just a little bit. So today is week two of our current sermon series. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Encountering Jesus. And during this sermon series, our goal is over the next eight weeks is for us to walk through the entire book of Mark. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of the high points, some of the major stories that happen within the book of Mark from chapter 1 to chapter 16. Our goal is to answer the one question that comes up over and over and over again. The author is wanting you to answer this one question that's simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so throughout the entire book, there's different encounters of different individuals in front of Jesus and having conversation with him, meeting him, encountering him. And the question they're posed every time is, who is this Jesus exactly? Who is he? And so this morning, I want to take one more step in answering this question as well. I know a lot of us in the church, we've probably heard a lot about Jesus I know as a kid, I heard about him all of the time. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you, you probably have a lot of church knowledge. You could win trivia, uh, you know, contests of some kind. You know maybe a lot about Jesus, but, but hearing about something and, and knowing about something and then encountering something are two completely different things. To hear about something and to actually experience it for yourself are, are two different kinds of things. I grew up in Indiana, and so my family, um, I actually never saw the beach until I was a freshman in high school almost. And I know people shaking their heads like, that is so sad. Um, but, you know, multiple states, so many miles to get to the beach, my family just never did that. And so I grew up on lakes and ponds and, and creeks in Indiana, spending time around water. And I just kind of figured as a kid, like, it's probably the same thing. 
you know, water's water, and so this lake is probably just like the ocean. It can't be that much better. But I would hear of people coming back from the beach being like, oh, it was so great. It's so amazing. It's so beautiful. I read about it in books. I saw it in movies. I heard people talk about it. And so I knew everything about the ocean, but I had never actually been there myself. And I will never forget actually going to the ocean for the first time with my family, almost as a high school, a freshman in high school, and walking out on the beach and realizing, wow, like it's so much better than anybody ever said. Like nobody ever told me that when you're standing there, like the smell of the beach, you know, not the nasty smell, but like the, the salt smell, you know, and like what your feet feel like in the sand. You know, every water I'd ever seen, you could see the other side of it. But when you go to the beach and to the ocean, you cannot see. The, it disappears across the horizon, still water all the way, waves lapping the seashore, all these things that could not be described that I had to just experience and encounter on my own. And here's the coolest thing. Now I live in a wonderful state where it's not states and hours to get to the beach. It's much, much closer. And so we go more often. But here's the coolest thing. Every time I go to the beach, it never loses its power. It's the same thing every single time. I mean, every time you walk up, it's like, wow, wow, that's amazing. You know, my concern for us this morning is that perhaps a lot of us, we've been in church for a very long time. And we know all the right answers. We've heard about Jesus. We, we could tell you anything you want to know about him. But my concern this morning is that I'm afraid that some of us, we have never actually encountered him. From going from kind of intellectual knowledge to a heartfelt transformation. Those are two different things entirely. So our goal over the next eight weeks is to ask this question, who is Jesus? And let that transform us into the people that he wants us to be. As you may know, there are four different gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you might ask the question, well, why Mark? Like if we're going to do a study through a gospel, why would we choose Mark? And it's actually pretty simple. The gospel of Mark is a fast-paced introduction to Jesus. It's fast-paced. In fact, 40 different times the Greek word for the word immediately is mentioned. Mark would say, immediately this, and then immediately that, and then this thing happened, and that thing happened. It's actually the shortest of all four Gospels. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll pick this one. We'll get through it maybe in eight weeks. No problem. We'll get to see all the highlights. Therefore, scholars believe it's probably the first of the four Gospels as well. Some of the other Gospels kind of follow the same format. More than likely, Mark was written first, and it is the shortest. So from the beginning of the book, we, we get a bit of unclear picture of who Jesus is. The first verse of the entire book, Mark gives his opinion, and then beyond that, you are left to your own devices to decide who Jesus is based upon each encounter that he has. And as the book goes on, more and more clarity comes, but also more and more oppositions come to Jesus and what he's doing in the world. This book was written by who? Mark. Now, what a trick question is a little easier. Right, Mark wrote this book. And history tells us that Mark was more than likely an early church scribe. He was well acquainted with friends with both Paul and with Peter. And in fact, an early church historian named Papias, he says that Mark, he records, took a collection of Peter's eyewitness accounts, and that's what he wrote down to make this gospel of Mark. He writes it all down for us. In fact, when you read the book of Mark, it's kind of like hearing a story from my two-year-old daughter, Murray. Just the other day, I was at the house, and I heard her start crying, and so I ran out onto the back porch, and when I did, I, I found her lying on the ground in the yard. And so I said, Murray, what happened? And she said, I play in. And then, and then Cruzy knocked me over, our dog. And then and he stepped on me. And then I get dirty. And then I cry. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. So I picked her up. I dusted her off, took her back inside. That's kind of like the book of Mark. 
It's immediately this, and then this, and then this. All the extra information is not necessary. Mark just gives you straight. Here's what took place. Here's the story. And you answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The shortest book with all this information that we can then choose. It piques our curiosity throughout the entire book. And hopefully by the end, what it does for us is it gives us certainty of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 is what we're going to start today. Chapter 2 of the book of Mark begins this way in verse 1 and 2. A few days later, when Jesus was again entering Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside of the door, and he preached the word to them. So before chapter 2, chapter 1 tells us what's going on. Jesus has come on the scene, and according to the very first verse, here's what Mark says is going on here. This is the beginning of the good news of the Messiah Jesus, who is the Son of God. The rest of the book is Jesus laying claim to those things that were just said. Him proving this through miracles. He's been traveling around in kind of the Judean countryside doing miracles, feeding the hungry, taking care of those who are sick, driving out evil spirits, preaching this good news about this kingdom. Jesus has been very busy in chapter one. And then chapter two begins by saying, and so he's come home. And as he comes home, just like a celebrity, people have come to see him because they've heard about what he's done. Because you know, as they say, good news travels fast, right? So good news has traveled about what Jesus has done and people have heard about it. And so such a large number of people have come to hear him speak and to see what he has to say that the house is full. And there's people standing outside, leaning into the windows to hear what Jesus has to say. There's a lot of people who have come. Now scholars are not in agreement as far as whose house this is. Some say this is Jesus's house that all these people have showed up to as he's come home. Some say it's probably Peter's house and maybe Jesus is staying there and kind of basing his ministry out of this place. But either way, he's come back to a place where he's very well known and very much heard about. And so the first encounter that we're going to look at through this chapter 2 is this encounter with the large number of people who have come to see Jesus. And they've come because of a fascination with the works of Jesus. They're fascinated by him. They've heard what he's done and they want to come see for themselves. And so, so many people have showed up that the house is full. They've heard about his miracles. They're fascinated by the way that he treats people. And so they've, want to, they've come because they want to know more. This may be true within your life as well. Maybe you've heard about Jesus somewhere along the way from a friend, from a family member. Maybe you've heard about it within the community. Maybe perhaps the reason you're sitting in the pews here this morning is because at some point in time, you heard enough about Jesus that you were fascinated by him. You wanted to know more. One of the many things that I love about serving at this church is Mount Horeb has always been interested in lifting up Jesus in this community, very intentionally. And it's happened in a lot of ways. Think Friends of Music, right? We lift up Jesus in this community so people might come. Vacation Bible School, pre-COVID, and hopefully very, very soon, we've had thousands of children come here in the summertime to spend time for a week with hundreds of volunteers and those children's family come on Sunday. And from what I understand in the years that I've been here at this church, it's been one of the biggest open doors to folks in our community to come into the, the, the walls of Mount Horb and be a part of this church. So Vacation Bible School, Night to Shine, our prom for special needs folks and families from our community. It's an open door for people to come and be a part of what's happening here. All of these different ways. 
homes that we've built here in Lexington, multiple homes still on the way. It's a way that people drive by and say, what is going on here? Here's our goal for each one of these things. We lift Jesus high so that hopefully there's a fascination that builds and someone might say, what is this all about? Like, why would you do this? Why would you bother bringing in an artist like this so people could come and hear this music? Why would, you, why would you put so much effort forward for thousands of children to be on the campus and make all the messes and everything else? Why would you put forth the effort to build these homes that you're never going to live in, but they're for families in this community that are deserving families? Why would you do all this? And very simply, it's this. It's Jesus. There's no other reason for it. It's Jesus. And it, and it develops within people's hearts a fascination why? What's, what's really behind this? This is what's happening at the beginning of the story. There's a fascination with the works of Jesus. These things that he's done, I want to know more. Tell me more. And so they've gathered together. But Mark in chapter 2 wants to juxtapose this large group of people that show up at the very beginning in verse 1 and 2 with a much smaller crowd that shows up starting in verse 3. And Mark does not want you to miss the difference here. The first group comes because of a fascination with Jesus. In verse 3, here's the second smaller group. It says this, Some men came, bringing to him then a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, the house was full, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat that the man was lying on. So picture this for a moment. There are four friends They have a mat with a friend who's lying on it. This man is paralyzed. He's unable to walk. And so what they do is they decide they're going to carry him to Jesus. They get there a little bit late. The party's already started. And so the house is full. There's no room outside either. And so these men carry this friend, such dedication, such effort. And the author author tells us there's two different encounters here. The first one is an encounter of fascination. The second one is an encounter of desperation. Fascination with the works of Jesus, and then these four friends come along, and there's a desperation for the healing of Jesus. You see, they believe that their friend, the only opportunity that he has, they've heard the good news of what Jesus is doing, the only chance they have for their friend experiencing healing is to get him in front of Jesus. Scholars say that more than likely, based upon Jesus' ministry, they may have carried their friend from a mile away all the way up to 40 miles away. So I want you to imagine for a moment being a friend carrying a corner for someone else and you carry them from downtown Lexington or potentially Newberry. That's a long way. That is serious dedication, serious effort. So when they make it to the house, they've each grabbed a corner and they bring their friend this way. Wouldn't we be the kind of people that hopefully that have the kind of friends that would grab a corner for us? Amen? Wouldn't we hopefully be the kind of people who would grab a corner for someone else to get them in front of Jesus? So they arrive, and the house is full. And I want to be honest with you. If I was one of the four friends, I would have been like, well, we tried. Right? That was a really long walk. I'm a little hot and sweaty. What do we say? We go to San Jose. Like, this was, this was a long way, and there's no way we're getting to him now. There's too many people here. Like, we tried. Maybe tomorrow. We'll, we'll try again tomorrow, find out where he's at, and check social media, and then and just show up again. We'll see how it goes. But that is not the way these four friends interact with this situation, do they? The Bible says they take their friend on this mat and they drag him on top of the roof of the house, which an ancient Near Eastern house at this point in time would have had a ladder of some kind to get onto the flat roof that would have existed above the home. And that roof would have more than likely been made of some kind of stone tile was stacked on top of that dirt, rock, stone, grass, so forth. 
And so literally these friends drag him on top of the roof and they begin to dig through the dirt, the rocks, the sticks to get him where he's able to be lowered in front of Jesus in the house. So if you're someone who's there at this situation, listening to Jesus preach inside the house and suddenly rocks and stones and dirt begin to fall from the ceiling in front of Jesus, right? This is not a fast process. This would have been a slow kind of unfolding, you know? Can you imagine me, one of the friends up there like, we're really sorry, uh, just a few more minutes, you know? And can you imagine being the, the guy who's lying on the mat and now you're fully embarrassed because you're being lowered down in front of everybody else in front of Jesus in this house as he's preaching? It's desperation. Do you see the difference between fascination and desperation? Fascination, you'll show up. There's enough room. Maybe you'll make it inside. Desperation says, no, no, no. We will dig a hole through the roof if we have to, to get to Jesus. Because we believe he's the only way we experience true healing. And that's what's happening within the story. It's a desperation for Jesus. You know, I see people all the time who give such kinds of energy and time and attention because they're desperate for certain things. People who dedicate themselves to becoming popular or relevant and the amount of energy and time that goes to social media and other things to make sure that's the case, man, it's desperation. I know people who are so desperate to have success and to have stuff that they will work with all kinds of energy, whatever it takes to earn all the things and more. It's desperation. What if we had the same kind of desperation to find ourselves encountering Jesus? Because we believe he's the only one who can truly, truly heal us and provide for us the things that we need in the deepest parts of who we are. So the man is lowered before Jesus. The friends get him to the roof. They, they get him down in front of Jesus. And everybody, I'm sure, is waiting to see what's going to happen next, right? It's been a little bit awkward. What's going to happen now? Here's what Jesus says. The first thing he says to this man in verse 5, Mark 2, 5, says, When Jesus saw their faith, first of all, whose faith? Their faith. The friend's faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. So let's recap for a second. Potentially you've been carried from a mile, 40 miles away on a mat. You've been pulled up onto a roof through a ladder. That was probably a pretty sight. Then you were lowered through a roof that you just dug through in front of everybody else watching Jesus preach. You finally make it in front of him. And the first thing Jesus says to the boy is, son, your sins are forgiven. I'd be a little mad. Because I'd be like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. That's not the problem I have. The problem I have is I can't walk. I want you to do something about that. That's what I've come here for. But the first thing Jesus says is, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, this man in the story, he is fully physical, but maybe what's missed by some of us is he is fully spiritual as well. And there's a deeper need that he has that goes beyond just the physical. You see, this particular encounter, we go from fascination to desperation, and this man experiences redemption at the forgiveness of his sin, the thing that he didn't even know he needed. He believed he had a greater need. You see, I, I love to hike and backpack. I've had the chance to travel different parts of the world and see amazing things. But the thing that I want to see still one day, in the first crowd, they've done this, so I want to hear from you guys. I want to see it like an iceberg, a real iceberg in front of my eyes. Anybody ever seen like a real iceberg? Man, y'all are so cool. I, one day. I've never seen the ocean until I was a freshman in high school either. So, I mean, surely icebergs will one day come. So, I've never seen an iceberg. You ever drank a drink with ice in it, though? Iceberg. So, they function the same way. 
And, and the way that an iceberg functions, when you're looking at an iceberg floating in the ocean, you're literally seeing 10% of that chunk of ice. 90% of the ice actually resides under the surface. Same thing if you're drinking some tea. That ice that's floating in your tea, 10% above the surface, 90% below. So when you're looking at something like that, you're only seeing the outside form and there is much more that's under the water. And I would argue it's actually the most important part of the iceberg. If you don't believe me, ask the Titanic. They will tell you it's incredibly important, the things that are unseen. You see, this man's issue, his physical need, the paralysis that he's brought here for is the 10% that everybody knows about. But Jesus knows that there is 90% of this man that nobody ever sees And it's actually the most important part. And so Jesus takes care of that first. He says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. It's the deepest need that you have. And so even this morning, I know that all of us, we could probably point to something that's an external need that we have, whatever it might be. Maybe it's an addiction, a struggling marriage. It might be an anger issue. It could be an issue with gossiping or things that we say to one another. You name it, debt that we can't ever hope to pay off. I mean, all the things that are like the 10% that all the people see that really, in the end, if we're honest, we're like, Jesus, I want you to take care of this thing. First and foremost, can you fix this? And what if Jesus all all along is saying, no, there's something greater that you need. Because I can heal you physically, but if spiritually you're never healed, you've gained nothing. So Jesus says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. It's the greatest need this man has. And within the story, this particular encounter, it's redemption. It's him really truly being healed. It's not what the reader expects, and certainly not what those expect who are around him. But it's what Jesus does first. Your sins are forgiven. Then Mark 2 Six through nine says this. After Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, here's what it says. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, the religious elite, of course, are around there as Jesus is talking. And here's what they say. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. They think it in their heads. But here's what it says in verse seven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. Isn't that crazy? Jesus doesn't even hear them say it. He just knows they're thinking it. So he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Which one's easier? Now this group of religious elite, they're having a major problem with what Jesus has said here. They call him a blasphemer. And blasphemy very simply is when someone speaks something or does something that makes a mockery of religious things. So according to Jewish culture, what Jesus has, has just done is something you would never do. Because the only person, according to Jewish culture, that could forgive sins is who? God. And so Jesus saying this man's sins are forgiven, essentially what he's saying is, I am God. It's the first answer to the major question throughout the book of Mark. And the question is, who is Jesus? Jesus answers it without doing it directly by saying, you know who I am? I am divine. I am God myself. I am God himself. So what we see this next encounter that takes place is an opposition to the divinity of Jesus. Redemption the man experiences through the forgiveness of sin and now the opposition to the divinity of Jesus. They have a hard time with what Jesus has just said to this man. And I would argue we have a hard time as well. Because if Jesus is God, what that means is that Jesus is the one who gets to call the shots not us. 
He has ultimate authority. And if we're really honest, we are opposed to that often. My younger son, Owen, we went through a season where we had to kind of teach him, you know, we are the parents and you are the child. Truth is, we're still teaching all of my children this lesson. Um, we are the parents. You are the children. And so we're working on this. And what we're working on is essentially authority. You know, like what we say is what we want you to do because we want to keep you safe and so forth. And so Owen had this bad habit early on when he was young. We would say something to him. Owen, no, you can't do that. And he would always say back to us, but I love to do in that. Like, I know you love to do in that, but you can't do that anymore. Okay, you can't spill that thing, break that thing, do whatever, eat that thing. You can't do this anymore. But I love to do in that. And he would get so angry with us. And we had to teach him over and over and over again and continuing on still. But how many of us know in the room, we all have problem with authority, don't we? Because in the end, we want to do what we want to do. And the religious elite had gotten really, really used to kind of manipulating the situation to get what they wanted to make sure they were in charge and they were on top and they could control everything. And so have this man named Jesus all of a sudden show up and say, your sins are forgiven. What that means is that I am God. What that means is nobody else is. I'm the one who has the authority. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus says in a moment. He says to them, which one's easier? For me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or for me to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. You see, the whole book of Mark is so focused on Jesus proving through his miracles, through his work, through his work in the countryside, the way he treats people, that he in fact is divine, that he is the son of God, that he is God himself in the flesh. So here's what he says then in Mark chapter two, verse 10 through 12, the end of the story, Jesus then says, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So the man got up, he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen anything like like this, those who had gathered at the very beginning of the story who were fascinated by Jesus now are amazed at the miracle that has taken place in front of him. Jesus says to the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. But my question is why? Like, why does Jesus tell him to take his mat and go? I would have been like, stand up, go home, you don't need the mat anymore. But Jesus says, take it with you. And I wonder if Jesus does this because he wants that man to take that mat home and every time that he sees it, to be able to look at it and say, I will never forget what Jesus has done within my life. I will never forget that I used to be unable to walk. I will never forget that I used to have sin that riddled my life. I will never forget the time that my friends, remember that guys, you, you put me on top of the roof, we dug the hole, that was crazy. And I got in front of Jesus and he did those things. He wants him to never forget what he's done within his life, the transformation that has happened. And I just wonder in the room, how many of us, we've had the encounter with Jesus, but we've forgotten somewhere along the way what it's meant for us. What kind of transformation has happened? We've gone from opposition to the divinity of Jesus, and now it's the transformation in the wake of Jesus. After the encounter, the kind of transformation that happens here is incredible. My wife and I, um, I, I, I want to say just finished a renovation on our new house, but we, you never finish a renovation really. So we're still renovating and uh, it's been about a year now that we've been working on our home and it's awesome. I love it. It's been so great and we love living there, but the truth is there's so much more to do still. 
And pretty much we've touched every part of the house. We might as well just have built a brand new house. Um, and I know probably some people in the room can re- relate to that kind of thing. We've built basically a brand new house, touched everything, all new floors, new paint, new kitchen, the whole shebang. But there's one thing that we decided we were not going to change. And it doesn't match the rest of the house at all anymore, but it's a, it's a door knocker on the side door when you come into our house, the door that we usually come into. And that, that side knocker on the door is still brass. It's still kind of nasty looking. It doesn't fit kind of the, the kind of flavor we're going for now. But we decided to keep it for one reason. And that was because we wanted to never forget what that house was like when we first got it. It's a little bit of history. It's a little bit of past of where we've come from to help us really appreciate where we are now. And every time we come by that door and we see that knocker, we are reminded of the transformation, the work that's been done in this home the blood, sweat, and tears. I just wonder, what would it look like for us to always remember the kind of work that Jesus has done within our life as well and to never forget where we've come from? Potentially for some of us in this room, maybe you're wondering, what would it feel like to have that kind of transformation? To look back on the present life that I have and see it as a past reminder of what God has done as opposed to a place that I'm stuck right now. It's something that can happen. And according to the story, An encounter with Jesus does just that. His love, his mercy, a power that only he has as God himself that can change our life and transform us. You see, the reason this story is so important is not because it happened one day long ago. It's important because this story still happens every single day. This kind of transformation work takes place within our life every single day as Jesus works in us And through us, and here's the best news of all. You don't have to go dig through some roof to get in front of Jesus. You don't have to go through all of that work. It's so much easier. The Bible literally tells us that we have a direct access. We can go directly to the throne of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. His death, his crucifixion, the blood that he shed on the cross for you and for me. And so this morning, these pews... This church, this sanctuary is the kind of place where we can encounter Jesus in a transformative kind of way. Not just head knowledge. Our goal is to never teach the Bible so we know more. We teach the Bible so we can apply more and become more and more like Christ. And so this morning in a moment, I want to pray for us. And as I pray, I I, I just want to make sure that you know this altar is open. I would love for you to come and join me in prayer this morning here at the front. Maybe you've never made this decision to really give your life to Jesus and say, you know what? I'm not calling the shots anymore. You are. You are authority. You are Lord. You are God. And I'm giving you my life because of it. I want to experience healing, true transformation. This morning you can do that. I'd love for you to come and pray at the altar if you'd like. Otherwise, you can make your pew an altar as well. We can meet Jesus and encounter him this morning. So if you would, bow with me. Let's pray together. Jesus, I don't want to, I don't want to settle and be satisfied with just fascination about you. God, I really want to be desperate for you, knowing in my heart that I need you every single day. If I'm going to be the husband I need to be, the father I need to be, the man I need to be, the pastor I need to be, the person I need to be, I need you. And so Jesus, I want to meet you and encounter you afresh today. Would you do something new in my life, God? And I pray that you would do it for every single person who's sitting here this morning. 
Jesus, we confess that we are in need of your love and your grace. We are in need of your forgiveness. And though we could certainly point to so many other things that we want you to do, God, we know that the thing we need you to do most is to make us right with you. So this morning, we give you our hearts. We want to take this moment and this time that we can encounter you in a special way. So I'd invite you now as we sing this closing song, it's just to come exactly as you are and to meet with Jesus today. Feel free to come to this altar if you'd like to, but you do not have to. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.